0: This is Cybite episode 113 for December 17th, 2013. Welcome to SciByte, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast, live on a Tuesday and fresh on a Wednesday over at JupiterBroadcasting.com. My name is Chris, and joining us every single week is our host, Heather. Hey there, Heather.
1: Hey there, Chris. Hey, Heather, happy science to you. Happy science. So,
0: what are we going to talk about today?
1: Today, we're going to take a look at new sources of fresh water, brain plasticity, water on Europa, spacecraft updates, And as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week.
0: Well, holy moly, Heather, all of those things are relevant to my interest. So let's kick it off with the news. All right, where do we start tonight?
1: All right, today we're going to start at, according to the latest report documented in the Journal of Natural Australian Scientists, they have identified very vast freshwater reserves buried underneath the oceans.
0: Oh, so in underneath the saltwater?
1: <laughs> yes, underneath the salt water. It's very strange to think of, but so now groundwater scientists have always been aware that there are these freshwater reservoirs beneath the seafloor, but they kind of assumed eh, it's kind of unusual, probably very weird circumstances to make it happen. But now researchers have revealed the presence of half a million cubic kilometers or 120,000 cubic miles of Whoa. low salinity water Whoa. beneath the seabed on the continental shelves. That is like, apparently is a hundred times greater than all the freshwater we've extracted from the Earth's surface since 1900.
0: Now, is it very accessible? Like, is there any way for us to actually get down to it?
1: It is vaguely accessible, especially for uh, seaboard coasts. It's not that entirely hard, especially considering what they have to do now to get fresh water to them in many places.
0: Oh, okay.
1: Essentially, what happened was thousands and hundreds of thousands of years ago, sea level was much lower than it is now. So the rainwater is actually able to penetrate into the ground, fill up all these water tables in. So then fast forward, the sea level rises, you know, ice caps, you know, melt after the ice age, oceans rise. But now they are still there. They're kind of protected by what they call blankets of clay and sediment. They're kind of piled on top of them. So it's not completely fresh water. It's what they call low salinity, which means Uh, that still it is much easier to um, convert to drinking water. A lot less energy than uh, seawater desalination. So it's... Is much, much less um, energy cost and a lot easier to convert it into drinking water.
0: That's pretty exciting.
1: Yeah. Now, of course, it's one of those things where it's must be very careful with them because there is no way to do it again. Because it specifically requires the oceans to be very low,
2: uh-huh. the water,
1: rainwater to in, <laughs> enter into those yeah. reservoirs, and then the seawater rises. And it's yeah. not necessarily going to be happening anytime soon
0: i see and and is it one of those things like once you break into it you're kind of it's go time like i I would think Uh, there would be a there would be a problem of polluting in a sense and, and getting the salt water in mixed in
1: possible but i think it's very similar to i would assume almost um tapping into any reservoir uh oil reservoir or even water think um you know, well water. You tap into it. Well,
0: I was picturing—is it going to be like an oil drill kind of rig where they'll drill down and and tap the fresh water and put a sp- put like a spigot and just suck it up? Is is that kind of what they're going to have to do?
1: Possibly. It. I'm not. It they didn't make it entirely clear about how exactly it they would. Out yeah, they might
0: not know yeah. yet. Yeah.
1: But it's possible that that's very similar to what they do. I'm. To be honest, I'm not entirely sure how they necessarily go down and tap um, aquifers that are not. You know, the different types of water aquifers on land. Yeah. yeah so. Yeah.
0: That's probably going to vary depending uh, on the, uh, you know, on where it's at and how to get to it. Yeah,
1: it'll be some something similar to go down, drill in, tap it in some fashion, and then pipe it back up to, uh, you know, to the seaboard coasts.
0: Well, I think that's good news. I'll tell you what, I'm a fan of, uh, I'm a fan of fresh water, so... Yes, it's useful. Yeah, and in fact... As we
1: reach over and hold our water bottles.
0: (laughs) I've got a uh, little fresh water right here, Heather.
1: And Uh, now all you (laughs) listeners are very thirsty, aren't you?
0: (laughs) All right, any other thoughts on that story? No, not yet. All right, well then, uh, I think this would be the uh, perfect opportunity, maybe right here, right now, to take just a brief little bit of a break. And uh, now the the holiday seasons are fast approaching, a Cybite listener, and uh, the Cybite program will be off for the next couple of weeks because Cybite got the luck of the draw again and lions on holidays. It's just like both, like first Christmas and then is it like New Year's Eve or New Year's Day? It's like back to back. New Year's Eve, yep. Yeah. So you're going to have a little extra time on your hands. And uh, we acknowledge this and we understand. And so our pick this week in a way you can help support the network is uh, Star Trek The Return, Written by William Shatner and narrated by William Shatner. Now, the return, you might ask? Well, spoiler alert, uh, Captain Kirk dies at the end of Star Trek Generations. However, William Shatner will not let that hold him down, and he wrote a book on his return and how it happens. And, uh... It's a three-hour and six-minute book, so it's not a huge commitment. It's uh, voiced by William Shatner, which is fun, and it's got some sound effects to it. It's kind of an interesting story. It's it's out there a little bit. I'll, I'll play a sample for you. Relations
2: between the Romulans and the Federation had been strained for centuries. Spock was instrumental in the efforts to reduce those tensions by decades of secret negotiations intended to reconcile the Romulans with the Vulcans. Though the Romulans were an offshoot of the Vulcan race, they had rejected the logic which had saved their Vulcan ancestors from succumbing to their primitive, passionate, blood-drenched beginnings. So who better than Spark, a child of emotional humans and logical Vulcans, to understand both sides and work for unification? On the horizon the last radiant spike of the dying sun flared, then vanished behind a distant peak. Overhead stars emerge from the deepening twilight. Far away, Riker saw Spock bow his head as if lost in memory.
0: I won't spoil any more for you, but what's fun about this is it's written by William Shatner and then it's read by him too, so you get exactly how he intended it to come across, which is pretty yeah. neat. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, not, it's not like having a new Star Trek episode, but it, it is in your mind, in the theater of the mind. It's kind of like a new Star Trek episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I picked that up Oh boy. Um, Years ago. And I've just had it. I've had it in my library. I haven't really talked about it much. I might have mentioned it once before because it's interesting because, you know, William Shatner comes up with a pretty creative way to bring Captain Kirk back from the dead. And uh, it's it's kind of a fun read. So uh, that is Star Trek The Return. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And if you pick that up, it will help support the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. But it'll also give you a little something to listen to. While Cybite's on holiday break. Oh, William's still going. Hold me, let me pause William here. Uh, so you go over there and grab that book. And uh, if you aren't an Audible member yet, you can get that book for free uh, by using our affiliate link. And if you decide to cancel your Audible membership, you get to keep the book. And if you are an Audible member, go use one of your credits on that. It's totes worth it. And it's a three hour and six minute listen. All right, Heather, let's do the News Bite. All right, what are we talking about in the News Bite?
1: there's a new computational model developed by MIT neuroscientists explaining how the brain maintains a balance between plasticity and stability and how it can learn very similar tasks or feel without interfering with them.
0: <laughs> yeah, unlike what I just did. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Okay. This but, is this is probably a little bit of a secret sauce here.
1: Yeah, but to learn new motor skills, the brain has to be very plastic, able to rapidly change you know, mm-hmm. strength between the connections of your neurons, sort of performing new patterns mm-hmm. to accomplish a specific task. But if the brain is too plastic, then previously learned skills get flattened over. Mm. So it's it so that it makes it impossible to sort of maintain the no, that knowledge.
0: Do you don't want to have plastic brain.
1: No, not completely plastic brain. Oh, but
0: you want to have a little plastic. Okay. So yeah. uh what do we know now?
1: So what's happening is You know, the neurons are always changing. There is, you know, thousands of different ways that it can be connected. But, and you're not going to do it perfectly the first time. At least the great majority of us don't. Right. So the brain has to go back and it's like feedback from every effort going, all right, well, how do I find a different solution, the best way to do it? You know, so it hits out all those.
0: You know, it, so and that, it sort of gently wires itself over and over again until it gets it right.
1: Yeah, I mean each neuron is kicks to about 10,000 other neurons. So there's a very specific path through the puzzle to get to where it needs to go. Mhm. So most models that they've done so far don't include what they call noise. And there is very low signal to noise ratio saying because they're well all the brain is sending out all of this data and not completely all of it is successful. So there's a little bit of noise in there, and a lot of L, uh, models don't include that.
0: Okay. That's, but Yeah, okay. In,
1: but including that, it helps the model explain how the brain can learn new things without unlearning others. So it's kind of, it's kind of strange. Essentially, what it breaks down to is that these constantly changing connections explain why... Um, some skills can be forgotten unless they're practiced,
0: mm-hmm, Right,
1: especially if they overlap with other. So if there's something very similar, you know, like um, two different swings in tennis or, you know, something that are very similar, it's unless you maintain that practice, it's easy to kind of um, write over it and cross between. But something that's really has nothing to do with each other, like um, riding a bike is very specific, so it doesn't overlap or come very near other skills. So it's very—it's essentially permanent knowledge. You know, once you ride a bike, you never forget mm. is, the, you know, the saying goes. Yeah. But it's because it's a very specific on its own thing. Now, so it's it kind of helps why the brain is doing these things. Now, for me, the first thing I thought of is, um, you know, something very similar. You have your brain is wired. You know, this happens in this way. For me, you know, when I married and my name changed, it took a little while for my hands to remember, right. you know, at that very, at that very beginning, it's like, wait.
0: Or yeah. we're about to change to 2014. It's going to probably yes, people will be writing 2013 for a while.
1: Yep. You know, it'll be a minute. You'll get to the end of that date. You'll be like, <laughs> January, pause, 2014. Yeah. Yay, I
0: did it. <laughs> It'd be a very manual process for the first few times. Maybe, yes. maybe the first few weeks.
1: Yeah, the date definitely happens Mm -hmm. like that Mm -hmm. names are pretty quick if they change but uh, there is that thing where you're it's something very similar and your brain's going wait pause okay go and it takes a little while for it to rewire itself in that direction
0: so they're watching this process huh yeah Huh. i wonder if they'll figure out ways to not only maybe accelerate the repaving process the refolding process as it might be but also maybe lock it in like like, uh, here, uh, you take this pill and it, it just applies a lacquer to the brain and it, it, it molds it right in place and you'll never forget.
1: <laughs> and it will be 2014 for the rest of your life. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> See, your brain needs a little plus right. to right. It
0: is important. Yeah. Well, now we know. Uh, any other thoughts on that one? No. All right, Heather. Well, let me bring the- hey guys, come on. I got the band in. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Get the, get that barbecue out of your All right. Here we go. Yeah. All right, Heather, what are we talking about in the news bite? Or, uh, All bite right, news?
1: Mars One, that kooky little thing where they're going to take people and sit them on a one-way trip to Mars. Right. Yeah, big, a virtual, not a virtual, but a reality show where they send these people off. They've actually taken another step forward. They have announced that Lockheed Martin and Sirius Satellite Technologies, they've been awarded contracts by them to study and develop concepts for a Mars lander. And Data Leak Satellite. Okay. For a 2018 exploratory mission, as they're thinking right now. Oh. Now, their mission timeline is inching backwards, as I would vastly expect it will continue to do so.
0: Yeah, so that 2018 so, might become 2020, something like that, then 2022. Is that what you're thinking?
1: Y- yeah, well, they originally said that they wanted to launch this satellite in 2016, now got bumped back two years to 2018. Mm. Similarly... No, they're saying humans will arrive by 2023. Now that's scratched out 2025. Uh, okay. So it it will continue to move back. A hundred percent expect that too. Yeah. But they've actually every step they take forward. I'm very surprised.
0: Yeah, I, I you know, and they're getting serious now. They're getting uh, some yeah. some uh, some big names in there to do some of the heavy lifting and get some of the uh, essentials figured out that they've got to know before they do this.
1: Yeah. So,
0: well, very good. All right. Well, the Side by 2000 is flashing at me. And I think what this either means is it's an incoming communications or the Side by 2000 has finally figured out how to crack antimatter and, and power a warp drive. Let's. Uh... Oh, okay. No, it was incoming communications. Maybe next time we'll get the warp drive. Uh, what do we have this week, Heather?
1: Oh, my goodness. That always scares me. <laughs> so, we had a feedback from jacob roker uh on the twitter okay and he's uh pointed out a story about how the hubble space telescope has spotted water vapor above jupiter's moon europa
0: Mm, maybe like a like a volcano or like a geyser kind of a thing
1: a geyser yes it's been the first strong evidence of water plumes erupting off that particular moon's surface and it's actually very recently that that particular camera um well, not very recently, but it was on the last servicing mission that the space shuttle did to the Hubble Space Telescope that allowed them to have this kind of sensitivity to actually search for these
0: oh, type of plumes Okay, this close. Wow. So, look at that. In the So Heather has a video in the show notes. Is this that blue? Is that the water plume? Yeah. Wow. That's a lot.
1: Yeah. So, well, it's not necessarily completely uh, visual. Some of it would be infrared, but it kind of gives you an idea about how far out it would be.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Um. So
1: They've known that there is an ocean under Europa's icy crust. You know, exactly the layabout of it, how thick the water is. Is it mostly ice or slush or, you know, icy slurpy? So they don't really know, but they do see a solid surface, and now they've seen um, this sort of... Ocean underneath would definitely allow for these kind of blooms to come out.
0: Yeah, I wonder if they'll, especially spy, if they're. I wonder if they'll spy like any like fish coming out of that plume. Maybe like some salmon flopping around in space, like some
1: um, fish. No, doubt it. Um, Probably not. <laughs> yeah, science doesn't know how to answer that one. Yeah, but
0: um, I can hope. Shanna. I can hope, right? I mean, maybe one day hope. I can go fishing on Europa. I think that'd be pretty cool.
1: You might want to take a parka. <laughs> well, it might be needed
0: that, that's a good one thanks Jacob for sending that now uh Heather is j b underscore Mars underscore base on Heather right so that's how yes. he got that to you uh so what is there anything else we know about Europa at this point like that sounds uh, I don't know I mean that sounds like there's a lot of water over there Heather do you think maybe there's uh could be some kind of space microbe
1: it's always possible it's not out of the normal of possibilities of what they're looking at but what these jets allow is means that if we go out there, then instead of having to drill down through unknown distance of ice to try to get to if there's water or if there's just pockets of water here or there, what we can do is we can sit down, sit down near where we see those water plumes and check out the water plumes themselves. Mm-hmm. And that will give us a snapshot of what is underneath the ice without having to actually dig down
0: through it. And do we have anything planned to go out there and take a look?
1: Uh, Planned in the sense that we would like to.
0: Yeah. So it's on the hope to-do list?
1: Yeah, it's on the hope to-do list, things that we'd like to do. So also what they've seen is they're kind of modeling if there would be oceans underneath there, You know, how would the currents be and how would the essentially like water equivalent of jet streams. And so they've taken what they've seen on Jupiter, and they know um, the vaguely kind of models that they want to use. And they've tweaked a couple of the numbers until it's very reasonable between, you know, taking what Jupiter has and taking what Earth has and kind of going in between the two. And that's actually helping them identify what they see on the surface. There are these areas that they see um, jumbled up ice where it's been kind of Hmm. frozen and crunched and frozen and crunched. Mm -hmm. So it kind of gives them a better idea of if it's underneath here, then this is the kind of rotation that the water is taking. And therefore they can kind of say, okay, between that and seeing the jets, then you can get exact kind of determinations of where there might be liquids, uh, reservoirs underneath. Hmm. There, yeah, so uh, there is... A explorer that they're actually planning to launch in 2022, and that's going to look at a couple of Jupiter's largest moons, in, and that'll including Europa. Okay, so I'll be able to kind of take a peek at it. It won't be a specific mission where they land or anything, but they will be able to go to the area and sort of check
0: it out. Gotcha. All right. Well, uh, while we're up in space, we should probably do a spacecraft update because. There was a story that broke uh, since our last episode that had a few people in our IRC chat room pretty upset, and I guess there was like a cooling system problem on the International Space Station, right? That yes. That was going
1: on? One of, yeah, one of the pumps that have the flow control valve on the... regulates the temperature of the ammonia in a loop, and the ammonia is sort of introduced into a heat exchange system in one of the particular nodes, mm. and that makes sure that the water in the heat exchanger doesn't... Uh, doesn't freeze. So these kind of heat exchangers go through and they keep various computers cool that control, you know, part of the equipment, part of the, um, you know, scientific stations and equipment. So some, nothing at any time put the astronauts in danger. They did have to shut down a couple of non-essential subsystems. They shut down a couple of the experiment Mm. bays. Mm. So just kind of as a, as a precaution. They have two of these pumps that are always running. So they automatically shut down once that started giving problems. They shut down various components of things because, you know, to to loosen the load on the, you know, on pump B, say. Nice. And you know, it was it it did sh- was struggling there for a few. They were kind of worried, but they just, you know, shut down enough stuff that it wasn't going to be overtaxed. And at first they thought, well, maybe it might be a software problem. So they went through and tried to Test everything with that. And no, it looked like it was actually specifically a hardware program, a hardware problem. So there was a couple of days there where they were kind of checking things out, taking all the data. You know, the astronauts, their schedule changed a little bit because of uh, the various sure. experiment systems that were shut down. Yeah. There is actually a launch that was scheduled to go to the space station. And they put that whole launch on hold while they were figuring things out. And mm. that's actually delayed itself. But they do have a spare on the space station. And now there are spacewalks planned on the twenty December the 21st, 23rd, and 25th. Oh, so they get, to, they get to have a uh, spacewalk Christmas.
0: They'll have a pretty good view of Santa Claus then.
1: Yes, they'll be able to uh, spy him as long as they're keeping an eye on their pump. Right. <laughs> so they will replace the pump, bring it inside... Uh, put the spare in, and with the this mission flying up to the space station so quickly, they'll definitely have extra equipment and a a new spare for this particular pump.
0: Well, while we're talking about spacecrafts, uh, China had a successful landing on the moon while we were uh, in between episodes, right?
1: That is correct. We talked about last time how they were probably for a couple weeks now how they launched and got into orbit in the moon, and they actually had a successful touchdown. On December the 14th, they landed in what they call the Bay of Rainbows at 9.11 p.m. Beijing local time. And they trans. So then they transmitted their first images of the moon in what they said was real time as, as they uh, approached the moon. And then they actually were able to roll the little rover out. They had it on a platform above it, and then they sort of lowered it um, on like... Uh, some wheelchair ramps think like that where it's in the car and then it lowers out.
0: Oh, cool.
1: And so kind
0: of like within, a kind of a kind of like a, a little package that just, hey, here you go. We're going to deploy now." And that all happen yeah. pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, within about 7 hours, they're able to get it down onto the ground, roll straight out. This thing it's kind of, sometimes with these, it's hard to figure out how big is it? It's actually the size of a golf cart. Oh, okay. Well,
0: That kind of puts it in perspective.
1: Yeah, without anything nearby that you really under- can identify it to. Yeah. I'm always surprised about what size these things are. Yeah.
0: yeah. So,
1: on the 15th they were able to kind of they were able to get the rover out, turn it around, so you know, the uh the rover and these the little uh, lander were able to take pictures of each other. You now, so they'll, you know, they had the little red Chinese flag that they took pictures of and they were all proud and, and cheered and their little rover will Drive around the. Uh, it'll drive around the lander, and then it'll kind of drive off to see how far it'll you know how far it'll go. It's a. Uh, it's got a number of instruments. It's got cameras, uh, rate, uh, penetra- ground penetrating radar, a couple of different uh, radar instruments. So they're gonna see, below try to get below the surface some comp uh, composition, and this is all new. You know, equipment that very modern. So we haven't been landed on the moon in a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. So it'll be very interesting. They've got some cameras to study solar winds and telescope to study, you know, the celestial objects that they see. So we'll see exactly how, uh, how it goes for them. The big thing for them now is that the lunar night. Lunar night lasts two weeks. And Whoa. it's going to make a difference of uh, more than 300 degrees Celsius, Whoa. which surviving that thermal change and then surviving that cold all that long will be a pretty big engineering challenge. They've got a little radial isotopic heater, so they're hoping that that will keep everything warm enough. It'll keep the computer and the electronics happy enough that it'll be able to continue. But that will definitely be the next major challenge for them.
0: No kidding. Well, it'll be interesting to keep following it, Heather. Keep us updated, would you? Yeah. Interesting stuff develops. All right, we'll jump in the time machine. It's time to jump back. we got to go back in time. Oh, here we go, Heather. Oh, this one's got a little bit of extra charge to it. Oh, it's the Christmas lights I put in here to make it festive. That's nice. All right. Well, this uh, week, the time machine's taking us way, way back. Uh, That's right. 131 years ago, December 22nd, 1882. Heather, what happened this week in science?
1: The first string of electrical lights decorating a Christmas tree by Edward Johnson with uh, kind of a friend of Thomas Edison. So it was the first string of electrical lights, Christmas lights on a tree that were displayed.
0: Wow. And before then, no joke, like some Christmas trees actually used candles on the tree. Yeah. And yeah, it was wax candles fire. on the tree. <laughs> fire, Heather, on a, on, a, on a tree in a house.
1: <laughs> yes. That, you know, is drying.
0: Right. (laughs) It's just unbelievable uh, that that's how we used to do it. I mean, that's uh, so the lights, although, although I've heard some of those early lights were a little bit hazardous.
1: Yeah, they they kind of were. And actually this, you know, 131 years ago in 1882. But average Joe really wasn't using it until the 1920s, 20s or later. So it was, you know, 40 years before, you know. The random person on the street would actually be using it.
0: Yeah, wow. Uh, A string of nine sockets, each with a miniature two-candle power, 32-volt carbon filament lamp in the early days. That's incredible. Yep. Wow, and that makes you appreciate a little Christmas tree technology. See, there's even a little science in that Christmas tree. How about that? Yep. All right, Heather. Well, uh, let me recalibrate the Cybyte 2000. That way, we can look up into the sky this week
1: right. On Saturday, December the 21st, that is the shortest day of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, oh. the longest day for our friends down in the Southern Hemisphere, mm. and that is the day when winter officially begins. Local, uh, it is at specifically 12.11 p.m. Eastern Time.
0: Oh, You better tell that to the cold weather outside right now. I think it's, uh, yeah. you can get the memo. <laughs>
1: yeah. In general, we have got the big constellation for the winter is Orion. Oh. Check out in the show notes the picture. It is Really one of the easiest constellations to spot out because it's three it is four stars in a rectangle and three belt stars in between, which you know it's supposed to be a hunter. It is two shoulders, it's two knees, he's got a, a head, and then the three belt stars. They're specifically straight in the row. They're all pretty bright stars. Not that hard to spot if you are uh even in not so dark locations. Okay. I could definitely spot it here. Um, so in a not too far from a, uh, from a big city.
0: little light pollution can't keep Orion down?
1: No, Good. Not, not all the way. In general, over our holiday break, Venus is over there in the evening star, rising in the southwest during and after dusk. As we go on, it's going to be kind of getting lower and lower each day. So if you've seen it you know high in the sky and it starts appearing lower and lower, that's not just what time it is. That's kind of as, we, as our weeks are going by, days and weeks are going by. Mars is still hanging around about 12 12 to 1 a.m. local time. It's going to be in the high southern skies by about dawn. And by the end, uh, once we get into dawn, we've got Jupiter heading at the end of... So uh, it'll be at the end of twilight, rising in the east, actually. Okay. In the dawn, so in the evening, actually, Jupiter will be there. It'll be in the east to northeast, rising to a high point about 1 to 2 a.m., the moon will be over there near uh, Jupiter off and on for the next couple of weeks. And as you look at the moon and Jupiter, realize that Jupiter is 1,600 times farther away than the moon.
0: That's a mind-blower right there. That's pretty, that's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah. So Saturn is uh, in the early dawn, rising in the east-southeast, way to the far lower left of Mars. But the big ticket items that are really easy to see are obviously Venus. In the southwest, right after uh, the sun is setting, and then once that's down, as you get into twilight, turn right around, look over to the east, northeast, and you'll see Jupiter rising in the sky.
0: Oh, that's a show! All right, well, and uh, uh, now and and Orion is that's for a while. That's going to be like yeah, that's okay.
1: going to be over the winter.
0: Okay, hmm. that's a good sky, Heather. Yeah, all that's outlined in the show notes over JupiterBroadcasting dot com. Just look for episode 113. Now, uh, just a reminder: SciBite is going on holiday break. We'll be back on January 17th with all new science. Good, good opportunity to go grab that Audible book or uh, listen back over the back catalog of SciBite. Lots of good science there if you've missed some of those episodes. Heather, is there anything else we want to cover before we run this week? I don't think so. All right. Well, very good. We'd love to hear from you. You can still email us while we're gone. Just uh, shoot an email over to SciBite at JupiterBroadcasting.com or go to this website and pop that contact link. And don't forget, you can join us live over jblive.tv Tuesday evenings. Just check jupiterbroadcasting.com calendar to get the time in your local time zone. Heather, have a great week and a great holiday. Thanks so much. You as well. All right, well, thank you so much for tuning this week's episode of SciBite. Have a great holiday yourselves, and we'll see you right back here on January 7th.